0: If I am anywhere in the realm of artist, it's Uh only because I've started to tell a story based off of the images that I've captured. Yes. As opposed to going out with the idea to capture something because I have to express something. Yes. It's only in the last maybe year or two I've started to settle into the fact, okay, I'm an artist. I
1: see trees of green Red roses too, I see them blue, me and you, and I think to myself...
2: Virgin Valley Artists Association welcomes you to the Art Box, recorded in our beautiful Mesquite, Nevada and sponsored by the Virgin Valley Artists Association. Our association has something for everyone of all ages. Come and get creative with us at 15 West Mesquite Boulevard or find us online at mesquitefineartcenter.com or on Facebook as Mesquite Fine Art Center. Also on Facebook, The Art Box. <music>
1: Linda and Steve here for the Art Bach podcast and today it's a Sunday we're working on a Sunday everybody feel feel sorry for us but Alex Harper our friend Alex was in Utah this past week and he can tell us all about that but so Linda how are you doing today on this Sunday bright and early
3: I'm great Steve and I love working on a Sunday especially when
0: we have a guest like this welcome Alex
1: and we've been trying to get Alex for a while. So Alex, want to tell us a little bit about yourself?
0: Yes. Hey, uh, Steve and Linda, thanks for having me on a Sunday morning. It's one of those mornings in the spring in the desert where you really feel like you should be outside. And I spent a little bit of the morning outside, uh, enough to scratch the itch. And now I'm here with the two of you and uh, really looking forward to this. Yeah. Alex Harper. Who is Alex Harper? Still trying to figure that out. Uh, What I do right now is I I live in Las Vegas where I am uh, primarily spending my time working with the Red Rock Audubon Society as their lead educator, their lead naturalist, and somebody who is trying to advance the chapter's vision and mission through a variety of different uh, activities that we're doing. And so I'm, I'm a part of, of at least some of those activities or all of those activities to some degree. Prior to that, I had been a field biologist or field technician working as a point count biologist or point count <laughs> technician. I was working on a variety of solar and wind energy projects, doing environmental impact assessments almost exclusively on the wildlife side and uh, conducting different bird monitoring counts. So these would be point counts uh, across the western United States. I'm a naturalist, uh, meaning that I'm a professional, (laughs) it's, it's still boggles my mind that there's a profession for this, but it's pretty cool. Yeah, there's, there's a, I'm, I'm a naturalist working in Alaska and Mexico, uh, taking people around who are looking for wildlife or are interested in the natural world in some way. And, and I'm there to assist them with opening that up through natural history interpretation, kind of telling the story of the natural world as, as best I understand it um, in front of those people at those times. So, In, in uh,
3: other words,
1: Linda and I both want your job
3: We do. (laughs) So you just returned from Utah.
0: I did.
1: Correct?
3: Mm -hmm. And what were you doing
0: there? There is a... Festival that takes place in the st. George area every spring. It's called the red cliffs birding festival and it's put on by the local Audubon chapter there at Audubon chapter there in st. George and uh, This is a celebration of all things birds So they have people coming in from around Utah and the southwest and even uh, other parts of the country coming in to spend a couple days uh, With other people who are interested in watching birds talking about birds uh, interested in bird biology or bird conservation uh, this Festival is an opportunity for people to come in and go birding with uh, trip leaders and people who who know enough of what they're talking about and doing to take out groups and show them the bird life that, so that southwest Utah has to offer.
3: What a treat that would be for me!
0: Hey, I'm sure, I'm sure they'll uh, they'll open up registration for 2024 pretty soon. Good, yeah, good. just a hop, skip, and a jump for you here.
3: So you've been in Las Vegas for around five years. Before that, you were in Florida, and I read that you are one of five siblings.
0: Yes, you've done your research, yeah. Uh, I come from a big family, and I'm coming from the Miami, Florida area. So growing up in Miami really prepared me for life in Las Vegas for that type of city landscape. And I have a very large family. I've got uh, one biological brother and three uh, step siblings that I also consider uh, pretty much as as close to uh, blood sibling as one can be. And uh, yeah, they're they're mostly in South Florida. I have a brother in Chicago, and now I, I spend a little bit more time visiting my brother in Chicago than I do my family in South Florida because the the oldest brother has two nieces. So um, oh. I go spend time with the nieces.. Oh, yeah. How
1: fun. I, yeah. I bet they're happy when Uncle Alex shows up.
0: Yeah, they, they, uh, they enjoy catching bugs and mm-hmm. watching birds. So I think they get a little bit of that from me and um, that's something that I, they like to do. Little kids, I think if they get into that stuff early, it sticks with them. So they're, they're excited that I'm gonna come in June and spend time with them.
1: Yeah, that's fantastic. So you're not headed off to Alaska this summer? Or?
0: I will go to Alaska. I'll be there actually in three weeks. Uh, the very end of May or about May 20th, I'll head up there for three weeks. Then I'll come back, then I'll go to Chicago, then I'll come back to the southwest, and then spend some time in Las Vegas while it's really hot, go to Alaska again when the salmon are running, and then I'll come back in the fall. It's a little bit of travel for me this summer.
3: I was curious, what affects the bird populations in the metro areas, And, and what about the wilderness in the Mojave Desert?
0: So what is affecting wildlife in the metropolitan areas? So if we're thinking about the Mojave Desert, well, it's actually a really large area and most of the Mojave Desert is uninhabited. So most of the wild space is left undeveloped and unfragmented. You start to run into issues when you have too many large roads running through the desert. These start to create fragmentations in the landscape and actually do provide barriers for some birds. And things like tortoises and reptiles, they have have trouble crossing roads without getting hit. So tortoises have trouble with things like roads or railroads big time. You also have ravens that are actually doing really well. In this period of time where you have human populations going up, and for the most part, you know, 95% of most wildlife species, their populations are going down. Well, ravens are one of the few species that's actually exploiting uh, our, our movements and our development and our behavior. Um, as our population goes up, ravens also continue to expand. And something that they're doing is they're starting to create nests along... The telephone poles that typically run along these roads. And so that means that these ravens are crisscrossing these roads and, and flying along those roads and looking for things that are crossing or maybe road killed. So it actually attracts birds that can be scavengers or predators to things like uh, young tortoises to uh, places where they otherwise would not be. So the, the presence of all these roads running uh, all across the Mojave Desert like uh, Cobweb um, have that cumulative effect over time. When we're looking at metropolitan areas like Las Vegas or Pahrump or Henderson, I actually see opportunities for a lot of animals to benefit as well as um, other opportunities for wildlife to run into issues, hazards, if you will. If we're looking at the entire Mojave Desert and the fact that Mm -hmm. one of the reasons that it is a distinct desert from other deserts is the fact that it gets very low rainfall. We're getting about four inches of rainfall annually in the Las Vegas Valley, for example. That's not a lot, especially compared to the Sonoran, which might get 10 inches, you know, maybe around Tucson or Phoenix, they'll get a little bit more than we do. So we're getting very little rainfall and we have very few rivers running through the area. So water is a really big limiting factor for us. And starting in the 1930s, the federal government started to dam parts of the Colorado River and really start to divert a lot of that water. And so what happened to the Colorado River is the ecosystems that naturally occurred around there began to to, to change big time. Uh, we saw big losses in our cottonwood and our willow stands along the way. And then we had invasive species like tamarisk kind of replace them. So you had habitat loss, and then you had a habitat change, a habitat shift towards something that's invasive. So a lot of our rivers in the area have also changed dramatically. We have now shifts in the environment that we have changed And these animals have to react in some way. And when they see a place like Las Vegas or Pahrump or Mesquite, a lot of these birds, well, a lot of them aren't even going to touch it. They're not going to go anywhere around the city. They are very particular to a certain plant zone, and they won't adapt around people whatsoever. Some of those species might include the black throated sparrow or the rock wren or the canyon wren. They're just not really going to be around people that much. No matter what we do, no matter how much xeriscaping we add to our yards, they're just not going to adjust. Then you have other species that will adjust and they'll use the urban oasis that we have created in adaptive ways or uh, exploitative ways. So what I mean by that is they will find ways to to find shelter, find food, and habitat, even though we have these obstacles that are there or we have made these artificial or non-native uh, environments. Uh, they can still use those. So we do see that, especially in spring migration, where you have birds coming in from all over. They see this billboard of green and blue of lawns and drip irrigation and fountains and, and water runoff and habitat. They see that, and they come, and they... Get resources. They hide. They drink water. They have food, and then they're able to fatten up, replenish their energy sources, and then they move on. If they're a migratory bird, for a lot of our migratory birds, I actually see our cities as very helpful, but there are some obstacles, and these obstacles are the same obstacles that birds kind of face everywhere. These sort of challenges that they'll face in any environment, uh, anywhere in the world, on any continent, and those big things would be cats. Cats are probably the number one reason that songbirds are in decline. There are a couple studies out there, and there's a huge range in how many birds are probably being taken by pretty decent studies, but that can range between 2 billion birds and 4 billion birds, so 2 billion uh, is the range. So people can't really pinpoint how many cats exactly are out there and how many cats are actually hunting birds and how successful they are. They have to figure that out. That's really difficult to do. That that accounts for that big range there, but that is two to four billion birds per year in the United States. Uh, and that's billion with a B, not an M. So that's big time. And then you have window collisions. These are cases where birds run into a window because they don't recognize what glass is. They see the reflection mm-hmm. of a habitat in the glass so if you have a window that is reflecting the trees or the shrubs in your yard or your neighbor's yard well those birds see that they think they're flying into habitat and bam, they hit a window. And um, occasionally they live, a lot of the times they die. Uh, Sometimes they fly off, but they die within a couple hours. So that's another big reason you have habitat loss. You have uh, habitat changes due to climate change. You have uh, neonicotinoids in the environment. So these are gonna be essentially poisonous insecticides or pesticides that we put on our produce to have more yield. To our, our produce and to get them out for cheaper. But in that process, when the new nicotinoids are introduced in the environment to kill off insects, they're also killing off the food that a lot of birds and bats and other animals eat. E- even if it's not a direct reason that they're being killed, uh, they're they're being killed um, sort of indirectly because of these actions. So there are many things that humans are doing to affect uh, birds. But in our cities, we have this opportunity to uh, decrease the amount of water that we're using, increase the amount of native plants that we're planting, and in that process, create more habitat for birds that are going to be coming to our cities anyway. So there is that opportunity. And then we can subtract some of these Uh, things that harm birds, like uh, decrease the amount of time that we have outdoor cats uh, outside or uh, decreasing the places where birds can run into windows. If you add and subtract, you bring that mindset to your yard or your community, you can start to see some changes.
1: What, What about feeding birds? I know we'll have neighbors who will feed the birds, and then, of course, they're snowbirds themselves, so then they
0: go back north and the birds don't get fed. Birds are really good at finding their own food. And uh, like humans, if they find that there's food that's out and it's really easy to get, so they don't have to work to, to really find it and they don't have to work to fight off competition to get to that food, then they will gravitate towards bird feeders. But if you take the bird feeders away, then it's usually not an issue. They'll go back to business as usual and continue to find food. I'd say the only times that you, well, there are a couple of reasons that you wouldn't want to feed birds. Um, one of them is if there is an outbreak like a bird flu, which I think there is an avian flu going right now. So having birds coming in and congregating, that's a great way to have, you know, like a super spreader event uh, amongst birds when they're now all in close contact, whereas they aren't usually in congregations like that naturally around natural food. So you definitely want to be aware of any avian flus that are going around. There's also doing it during a weather event. So if you were feeding birds and it's been a, you know, moderately, mild winter, and then all of a sudden a blizzard comes through, that's not the time to stop feeding the birds. That's the time to continue to feed the birds because they're used to that prevalent uh, food source or available food source. That can sometimes bring them in, and they'll cease Gosh. to move on if the winter is strong enough and they should have moved along in their migration, while well, sometimes they might linger if the food's really good somewhere. So you just want to be consistent. Alex?
3: Alex? I've noticed more and more solar farms in Nevada. How does that affect the birds and other wildlife?
0: They affect birds and other wildlife in that obviously whenever you're creating any new development, you're, you're scraping or neutering that, that landscape. You're closing off a certain area and saying, okay, this is gonna be solar or this is gonna be wind. And you are going through that landscape in part of that, the, uh, the pre-construction survey process where you're going through and you're establishing, okay, it doesn't look like there are any kit foxes or desert tortoise or burrowing owls. Uh, those types of assessments are standard. So they'll go through and ensure as best as they can that no threatened or endangered species are present. And then they'll have a plan to sort of remove them and relocate them. There are varying amounts of success uh, within that, of course. And then once a solar facility is established, well, some organisms can live amongst the photovoltaic or the heliostat structures that might be in a solar facility. But for the most part, you're going to see a big drop off in biodiversity in that area. It's not that there isn't any life, but it's certainly not a functioning ecosystem. And by functioning ecosystem, I mean you're not having all of the key players that are there to ensure that this larger system is running as a system should when all conditions are being equal.
3: Is there any thought about putting gardens underneath the solar panels? I've heard about that.
0: I have not heard anything about that. It It is a beautiful idea, and it's a lofty goal. I don't know how that would necessarily work out. I do know that underneath a lot of these pavilions or shelters, you you can get a little bit of shade. Mm-hmm. So if they're plants that don't need a lot of direct sunlight, they might be okay. I don't know anything about that.
3: Okay, interesting.
0: Yeah, and that's where we were putting Biocrust, Biocrust underneath the solar.
3: Oh, were you?
1: As a test, yeah. Because I think what they do, they come along and they put a glue down right now before they put the solar panels in. And that the bio-crust would replace the glue.
3: It seems like our desert tortoises, because they're so fragile, would have difficulty with any kind of moving them to different spots because of the solar farms. Do you know anything about that? or?
0: There are going to be a couple species that do not do well okay. with these large landscape-scale developments. Many of our larger terrestrial animals, firstly, they have territories or ranges. Mm-hmm. I think we're all familiar with territories and ranges, but this is going to be the the individual's home range where it's sort of setting aside a certain part of the landscape for itself to meet its own needs that would require the, or that would include the areas where it's resting or in bromation, where it's feeding, where it's getting its water sources and proximity to a mate. Those are some of the elements that they're looking for. You know, when we look out at the desert, we think, oh, well, you know, there's just like infinite space, infinite possibilities, but the reality is, is every time we are developing anything, whether it's solar or a new subdivision or whatever, we're displacing what's already living there. And these animals and their biology are as such that they're not just going to go start to cohabitate with their neighbor just because they've lost many acres just now to a development. Now you have an animal that is pushed out of its own home range if it survives the development of course if it moves out well now it's going to be competing with the other animals that have established territory and then they're going to figure it out so either that animal that was displaced out competes the one that it just got moved into Mm -hmm. out of necessity or it gets pushed out itself
3: Are there certain species that scientists and land managers are interested in on public lands like Aviqua May, Desert National Wildlife Refuge, or Gold Butte?
0: Animals that are federally listed, and then you have other species that the state is also additionally interested in. Sometimes there's some overlap. The big ones in southern Nevada are almost always kit fox, badger, Desert Tortoise, Burrowing Owl, Golden Eagles, uh, Gila Monsters in some areas, and I feel like I'm forgetting something. Did I say Burrowing Owl? Burrowing Owl is definitely on there. Yeah, a lot of our burrowing species will be on there, and and a lot of the burrowing animals are important because they're not just creating habitat for themselves sometimes they're creating habitat for a lot of other animals you know they tend to create these burrow systems and other animals will live in those systems with them so they tend to be called a uh, keystone species for those reasons if we're looking at birds there are a couple birds that aren't getting a lot of airtime, so this is an opportunity to give them a little bit of airtime. Good, here and, we go. <laughs> yeah, so here I am. Here's my big moment for these birds. Uh, some of them include the thrashers, and the thrashers are members of the mimid family. The mimid family is a family of songbirds, which include the mockingbird. A lot of people are familiar with the mockingbird. Well, there are a couple species that are about mockingbird size and shaped. Sometimes a little bit longer with longer curved bills, and these are our thrashers. And Nevada has a couple species of thrashers, most of them living in the southern part of the state in the Mojave portion of the state of Nevada. We have the Bendars thrasher, we have the Lacanse thrasher, crystal thrasher, curve bill thrasher, as well as the sage thrashers. These are species that typically like very arid environments. And we have two species in particular that are seeing quick population declines across their ranges. And of course, their ranges extend into parts of Nevada. So we have land managers who are interested in monitoring the populations of these birds because they're declining quickly. And they tend to be living on large areas of public land that is uh, a desert habitat. If we're looking at the Lacan's Thrasher, this is a pretty widespread species. You get them around Mesquite, anywhere that you have creosote. You have to kind of go out there and be paying attention and if you know what they sound like, you'll eventually run into Lacan's Thrasher. They're not a a very rare species of bird, but they are showing that they're sensitive to the drought. These birds are already kind of living at the edge anyway in the desert. A lot of the animals living in the Mojave desert are demonstrating you know how far at the edge animals can live at anyway and this drought is taking us to the edge of of demonstrating where animals can successfully replenish their population in a way that allows them to live deep into the future, right? And good conservation should be establishing whether or not we're able to allow these animals and plants to live deep into the future in the places that that they belong, right? So there's a lot of emphasis on these animals that are at the edge that are showing that they're not keeping up with the changes that they need to make. And so this requires asking conservation questions uh, that include what types of habitats do they live in, what rate of uh, recruitment might there be. So if you lose some, some individuals in a certain area, how quickly can they replace themselves from other populations? Is it high or is it low? Lots of different questions. And a lot of these birds like to live in the types of Mojave ecosystems that are being identified by uh, renewable energy uh, resource companies they're saying okay well we want this long flat area of creosote desert and uh, to many people that might look like just sort of barren desert as as many people classically look out at the desert and and believe but that's precisely the type of habitat that the Lacan's Thrasher uh, does well in very open desert that is creosote shrub dominated. And those are the, the areas that are being targeted by uh, a lot of these these solar facilities. I
1: want to talk about the disappearing dark skies and the impact on migration?
0: Oh, yeah. yeah there, there actually is a connection there. Once upon a time, probably, what, 200 years ago, North America was almost entirely dark skies. I mean, you had a couple a couple towns or cities here and there. But for the most part, you didn't get lights on constantly throughout the night in towering skyscraper buildings, right? So um, now it's really difficult to find parts of the desert where there isn't at least some sort of light pollution feature or source somewhere in the distance. I was at Bryce Canyon a couple nights ago, and it was pretty dark out there. And I know that there are only a couple small towns in the area, so I feel like I, I got some pretty nice dark skies. But those types of environments are harder and harder to find. It's not just stargazers that enjoy a good night sky, but songbirds actually migrate typically at night, and they are using the celestial bodies and the stars and nebulas and features of the night sky to help them navigate. So birds too require on dark skies to be able to help them navigate from wherever they're coming from to to towards wherever they're going over the course of a night when they're migrating. For us as bird conservationists, we're also encouraging people to turn off their lights at night at their homes or wherever they're working because all these lights are actually obstructing birds and their ability to navigate. And so coming from a place like Las Vegas, where you have the, the brightest city as seen from space, that's a pretty monumental challenge that that one could take on if that's the, if that's the way that we want to go. But it, of course, it just starts with having the conversation with a couple people who are on your side and think that that's a valuable thing to do and then you hope that uh you get enough people that can be persuasive with that and demonstrate to a lot of people that may not understand yet just how valuable songbirds are or how valuable birds are in the ecosystem and that it is of our best interest to ensure that they're migrations continue on for many more generations and that one of the best ways for us to do that is to turn off those lights when we can, especially during spring and fall migration, which is uh, spring migration is happening right now.
3: I was just going to say I was recently at the north rim of the Grand Canyon and they're doing something different now they have a lot of their lights out. I had forgotten something in my vehicle and went out of the cabin to, to go find it with my little cell phone. And I could barely see. I totally passed my adventure mobile and had to find my way back to the cabin. But the, the view of the sky and all the stars was just tremendous. I really enjoyed that they're turning the lights out at the North Rim
0: now. I didn't know that they're, they were doing that. Was it for bats and for birds? Do
3: I believe know? so, yes.
0: That's great, yeah. Uh, I, I feel like a lot of our parks, our national parks, will start to lead the way. They'll start to model that good behavior for us to, to follow. So that, that's really cool. And you're able to benefit. You know, you're able to to benefit in the way that the birds are able to benefit. You're able to see a lot more of the stars out there. Everyone wins.
3: I had never seen that many stars. It was so exciting.
1: We want to talk about snakes between Florida versus the Mojave.
3: Oh, good question. I'm curious about that.
1: Yeah, let's talk about snakes. And the reason I know about snakes is because of his Instagram page and mm-hmm. his snakes. Yeah, let's let's talk about snakes. Tell us the difference, difference between Florida and the Mojave. Of course, water is
0: probably one of them. Yeah. Okay. There are a lot of ways that that one could go, I think, when examining the the reptile diversity and, and composition, the assemblage, if you will, in the Mojave Desert versus that of Florida. Florida has some of the highest biodiversity of reptiles and amphibians, partially because of the presence of water. Most of that is going to be around the Apalachicola region, so that central part of the panhandle where Alabama, Georgia, and Florida kind of meet. That's the epicenter for herp diversity in North America. It's greater there than anywhere else because of the turtles, the frogs, the salamanders, snakes, and lizards that you all get in the same area. Whereas in the Mojave, when you're looking at the reptiles, it's pretty much all reptiles that are well-suited to life away from water. And so we have less reptile diversity in the mojave and at least as far as snakes go compared to parts of florida because we have less water and in florida we have a lot of frog eating snakes so a lot of our diversity is coming from the fact that we have snakes that eat frogs or snakes that eat a lot of uh, like worms or snails or slugs these are animals that they're eating that only live in moist environments Whereas here it's pretty much a completely dry environment, so your, the ability for different animals to pull from different other habitats is there's a lot less of that here. So the diversity is a lot less. Uh, we do have more rattlesnake uh, diversity though in in the southwest, way more, and the, part of the reason for that is the proximity to Mexico. The, the rattlesnakes came out of Mexico. That's where they diversified. And since we're so close to Mexico and rattlesnakes do well in very arid climates, we got a lot of that rattlesnake radiation, if you will. Uh, so we have six species just in Clark County, whereas in Florida, we have three species of rattlesnake in total. We have the eastern diamondback, we have the the timber rattlesnake, only in a couple areas of Florida, and uh, a little rattlesnake that's even smaller than a sidewinder is called a pygmy rattlesnake. They're only getting about a foot long or 18 inches long. So we have three of those there. We also have coral snakes there in Florida. We do not have coral snakes here. They're down in Arizona and Mexico. Uh, those are the closest ones.
1: Are, are, the, are the reptiles related
0: between Florida and, and the southwest? They are in that you might have a lot of similarities of, of animals that share the same genus. They're related enough. They, they have like similar common ancestors that might have been coming from other parts of North America, but it's impossible to really look at all the relationships without pressing rewind from this point where Earth is, the current climate that it is, you have to go back, you know, 7, 10,000 years to 3 million years ago when you have the Pleistocene and, like, you have all the ice that was present, more moisture or areas that were a lot cooler for uh, extended periods of time across the North American continent. <laughs> You had a lot less reptile diversity then, most of them were much farther south than where they are currently, and then as Earth has warmed, these animals have been able to expand their ranges farther and farther north to where they are currently. You can look at them now and you might think like, okay, well these reptiles, all these animals, they don't look all that related and they're found in disparate parts of the country and completely different habitats. but. You can see the similarities when you sort of look at what they've had to experience just in the last seven to eight thousand years to three million years ago, in particular with the Pleistocene. And I was
1: probably opening it up too big a question, but oh. I always, I'm, I'm always so interested, even now with climate change, how the south is moving north, yeah, you know, and and you see
0: animals from the south making their home here now yeah we we are seeing like in particular birds from the mojave desert they're showing up in reno on in more more uh more frequency you know they're just exploring the great basin desert a little bit more they're finding that the the temperatures align with what they're looking for at least maybe not the plants but some of them are finding ways to do that
3: Alex, I looked at your Instagram page today, and you are such an amazing photographer, and I especially love the way on the page that you made comments. I wrote down a couple things I really found interesting. So you ate desert mistletoe. Tell me about that, and what bird were you watching, and
0: and why? I Well, really quickly, I owe owe it to my mom uh, for helping to convince me that I... I do approach photography through the lens of somebody who's exploring the subject matter and trying to figure out what the story that I'm observing, what it means to me, and, and why it stuck out in the first place. Whereas before, I was just going out to take photos of things, mostly just to document them. And then over time, I realized that I wanted to think more deeply about what was happening in those photographs. And sometimes on Instagram, I'll post something, but there's a lot more that I have to say. And mm-hmm. so you probably got to one of those photos where, you know, I, I felt like there's something that I need to, to tell about what I'm seeing here. The goth cardinal. The goth cardinal. Yeah, the yes. fan of pepla. Uh huh. Okay, so we're talking about the phenopepla here. The Pepla is a bird that a lot of people might be familiar with, at least be in, in passing. Somebody has seen it. You know, they're driving down a a wash or through a busk in the southwest, and they see the classic mesquite tree or a catclaw acacia growing amongst uh, mojave yucca and, and creosote. And they see this dark, slim bird, a little bit smaller than the mockingbird with a a tall crest and maybe it has some iridescence or a red eye to it, well, that's probably going to be an aphanopepla. An aphanopepla is a species of songbird that we get here in the Southwest. They're also down in Mexico. For much of the year, they're exclusively eating a species of berry or a type of berry from a species of plant called the desert mistletoe. And the desert mistletoe is a parasitic plant that grows on a host tree, the host tree being a catclaw acacia, or a mesquite tree, of which we only have a couple species of mesquite trees. So very few trees that the desert mistletoe can grow on, but it grows on those plants pretty prevalently when they're in the right climate for it. And the phanopepla targets the mesquite trees and the catclaw acacias because the desert mistletoes are growing on them. So the relationship here is between the tree, the parasite, and the bird. And the bird is going to be flying into desert mistletoe shrubs and gorging on the berries that grow from that plant and then flying off to other mesquite trees or catclaw acacia trees and defecating and putting out the, the, the berry uh, pooping it out on a branch, and that berry might stick where it is and propagate and grow from there. What I noticed when I ate this berry mm-hmm. was how bitter it is and how it's not something that I wanted to have again. Maybe I'll point it out to a couple of people. You know, I'll, I'll encourage other people to have it just so they can taste what the of pepla tastes, experience just how viscous it is. It's a very sticky berry. It makes sense when you think about it in that it has to stick to the branch without falling off. So it's actually evolves for the feint of pepla to move it around. It's a really cool relationship between uh, this bird and the two species of plants.
3: Oh, that's really interesting. The other thing I was curious about, you took a picture of a bobcat outside Las Vegas. That was amazing. How in the world did you get that photo?
0: This photo of this bobcat that I captured a couple months ago was of a bobcat that had been hanging out in the orchard at Corn Creek for a couple weeks. And it had been on the orchard hunting pocket gophers that live in the orchard. And so underground in the orchard, you have multiple pocket gophers that live in their subterranean burrows. And they have to come up to the surface every now and then to find food or do maintenance on the burrow, like to push out some of the soil that's in the burrow, up out to the, the exterior of it. And when they do that, they're vulnerable to predation from anything. But in this case, there was a bobcat that was trying to predate on them, trying to catch them. This bobcat had actually been spending a couple days in that area at the same time. So I, I actually knew to look for it. And then eventually it waltzed right out while I was there with a couple other bird watchers where we they're wow. doing some bird watching. And I had my camera already out. I just had to tweak the settings a little bit and get low and just wait and uh the the cat walked right on by and the cat was very focused you know it had its reason for being there mm-hmm. it was used to people it kind of knew that there would be people kind of moving around slowly trying to get a look at it but for the most part it didn't really seem to be bothered by us
3: well it was an amazing photograph and i'm amazed i'm surprised that you were able to see it in person. I thought perhaps you set up your box to take so many pictures an hour, the way Steve does with the <laughs> night sky, you know. And so that that's fantastic. And then the other one, and there's so much, you, you have Alaska pictures, you have pictures of the Miami area, pictures of the desert. But another one that really caught my eye was the black crowned night heron catching a largemouth bass. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's That's an amazing photograph. Your photos look like they should be in National Geographic on every page. You know that, right?
0: (laughs) Thank you. Uh, I appreciate that. What I really enjoyed about that day with the black crowned night heron is one, the opportunity to see a black crowned heron eating a bass. You know, a fairly large fish, Yes. they don't quarter the fish up into smaller bites, they eat it whole. So they need to manipulate the fish so that it's going down head first instead of tail first, right? Mm-hmm. Because the fish has spines that actually make it difficult to just slide down the throat of whatever's eating it. That's an adaptation that they have to, to fight off predation. So the bird has to do that. I love the entire story because you have Floyd Lamb, which is... A old ranch. It's an old historic park in Las Vegas. It has four ponds where people fish. We don't have any native fish in that area anymore. A lot of them have been extirpated. Um, Some of them can be found at like Corn Creek where you have uh, species of pool fish and native fish but for the most part a lot of our non-native fish are gone. And so the Nevada Department of Wildlife stocks these ponds for people to go fishing at. So if you go to Sunset Park in the center of Las Vegas, you go to Floyd Lamb, Aliante, you go to uh, Veterans Memorial Park in Boulder City, all these places are stocked with fish by Nevada Department of Wildlife. They might stock them with catfish in the summer, or they might stock them with trout or bass. all all fish that people really like to go after. And so here we are at this pond with the black-crowned net heron, a very adaptable species that's found on six different continents. It's found on all the continents except for Australia. They do really well around human habitation. They've learned to adapt or be exploitative around humans. And so I think that's already really interesting. Then you have this bird finding its way to live amongst people despite all of the challenges that people throw at them because it is feeding on fish that the state agency has introduced to the pond to keep the anglers happy in southern Nevada that aren't otherwise able to go fishing all that easily because we're living in the Mojave Desert. Right. You know, so there's just like this cascade right. of things that had to happen or reasons that needed to exist in order to actually have the fish in this pond in the first place that's actually attracted the birds there to begin with and then I have this opportunity to go out and see this interaction that's happening. And, and all, all of it seems kind of artificial because the bird's there only because we've created the habitat for it to be there mm-hmm. and given it the opportunity to catch fish that wouldn't ordinarily be there that's know? a
3: great story though how fun
0: yeah, yeah it's like I've seen similar things like that in the Florida everglades, but mm-hmm. that's that's in like truly what I think of as a a natural landscape you know a native bird eating native fish in a, in a unalterated for the most part unadulterated habitat mm-hmm. whereas here it's way different
3: is it hard sometimes to combine your science person with your arts person because I have difficulty with that I, I was my background is mathematics when I go from my very structured life trying to do artistic things it's difficult for me do you have that problem or
0: I've struggled with that for a lot of my life and I'd say only now am I learning to embrace both sides and not emphasize as much the analytical scientific side. I think the scientific and analytical side help me to make sense of the world and then the artistic side allows me to make sense of myself. Well said. You need both. Mm -hmm. The scientific side is probably your best tool to accurately and rationally figure out what is happening in the world and therefore take the best actions for what you're seeing in the world. So, if you want to do good for conservation, you, you need to understand the science. You need to understand the thinking of it. And I think if you want to do the best possible thing for yourself and your goal, or your mission, if conservation is it or whatever it is in your life, then you need to have that relationship with yourself too. And I think that going out and seeing things through that scientific lens, but then Asking myself in some way, whether it's through meditation or just sitting out and practicing or, or writing, describing what it is that I have just photographed is really good for that, too. It helps me to figure out why I found that relevant, why I found that interesting, why I found that the thing that is important to me. And it, in exploring that, that has helped me to find that balance a little bit more. I wouldn't say that I'm there. And it would probably be like a lifelong journey to always mm-hmm. make sure that I, I find that balance. But that's at least one way, I think. Alex, if you could go back in time, where would you go and why? Ooh. I... I have daydreamed about this because I think in my mind, what I would want to do is I would want to take some bit of information that seemed really important that people in the past didn't know yet and say, okay, here's what you need to know right now. Here's this really important information. And, And then I think about my credibility too, you know, if I did just show up and say, hey, I'm from 2023, and here's a state of the world, here's, here's the state of discourse, here's the state of, like, democratic institutions, here's the state of the environment, here's the state of, like, the, the social moment, you know, what people would think about that, you know, they probably kind of dismiss me, right? I mean, who wouldn't? I would, if some person said ham hey, from the future and started to tell me all these things that I can't even think of, conceptually, I have no visual, I'd probably dismiss them.
2: Word again, heavy. Why are things so heavy in the future? Is there a problem with the Earth's gravitational pull?
0: What? If I was able to infiltrate without really, like, knowing much more about With with only a little bit of of insight to draw from, I would probably want to come in around like 1900 or 1910 and figure out how to talk to John Muir and uh, Teddy Roosevelt and get in on that turn of the century concept of American conservation that started to happen when you had the Sierra Club start to come together and John Muir really writing about how unique and important large landscapes are to our heritage and to the ecosystem in order to maintain a ecosystem with integrity something that self regulates itself because that's that's kind of what they do they self-regulate and you shouldn't need to intervene you only intervene when you've made too many complications to the system and you need to like go correct something right and you throw a lot of time and money well we want to avoid that as much as possible. And I would I would just kinda of want to come in and say, Hey, here's an, a lot of other things that have happened that maybe you weren't accounting for yet and maybe adopt that into your approach. That's where I I think I would be able to come in and at least make some sort of claim that maybe somebody would take seriously. I don't know. Yeah, excellent. Yeah.
1: Best answer ever. Yes. Yeah? Oh, huh? cool.
3: Is there anything that keeps you up at night now?
0: Oh, things that keep me up at night. Honestly, the things that keep me up at night are, are usually things that are easily solvable and not keeping me up because they're unsolvable. The things that keep me up at night are probably the things that are, are thoughts about things that I should have done in order to make sure that I have a clear head so I can do what's really important. I'm running behind on getting an email out to somebody or working on a document or, you know, this year it was like taxes. You know, I kept putting off my taxes. And I think if I just kind of did all these things that I know would help clear up my space, I would be able to do more with that freed up bandwidth. Those big ideas or those big looming things that like come with a sense of dread or something like that, I don't really fret about those things as much as I have in the past. Now it's about, like, the little things like, oh, Alex, you want to, like, get up and have this productive day. There's so much to do. You should have done these other things first in order to clear your mind. So it's, like, not really big topics anymore. I try to, I try to make time to put those aside and return to them the next day with a clear mind.
3: Sounds like a good plan. Did you ever see the movie Forrest Gump?
0: Yeah, many re- times.
3: Do you remember when he started running, and then all of a sudden he said, "I'm done running," and he turned around, went back.
0: It's one of my favorite my... scenes. Okay.
3: Oh, so I'm thinking, Alex, um, you grew up in Florida, and here you're in Nevada. Did you just one day say, "Okay, I've seen a lot of water. I'm done now. I'm <laughs> going out to the desert." <laughs> how did you? How in the world did you get out here?
0: That movie actually was really impactful on me. Really? Because, yeah, for a couple of reasons, but one of them, that scene does stick out. And I watched it when I was in high school and really think that that scene where he's running across the United States, I remember thinking, like, I want to see some of the United States. Uh, You know, I want to be on some of these historic roads and see some of these landmarks. And um, I, I definitely feel like that inspired or incited some wanderlust in me. Uh, when I was younger, Forrest remains one of my favorite movies of all time. I love water. Want to be around the ocean, I think, again. I do get to spend some time around the ocean here and there throughout the year. You know, when I go to Mexico or Alaska, I'm around the ocean. I settled on the desert because I love, I love the desert. I did have a moment when I was younger where I th- remember thinking, like, I really want to live in this ecosystem. I think it's really interesting. I love that you can see the rocks this way. They're not covered in soil and obscured by clumps of deciduous plants. Like you can see straight through the plants and and right to the rocks. And I thought that was always really interesting. I picked Las Vegas partially because the opportunity to make an impact was there. I think Mm -hmm. there are some things that I want to do in my life that can be done anywhere. But if I looked at where the greatest amount of impact could be, it would be outside of Las Vegas. And when people ask me, you know, why Las Vegas? It seems like the last type of place you would wanna end up, you know? Like nobody's doing anything there with bird conservation or there isn't any wildlife to see there. And I think like, okay, well, it's that, precisely that type of thinking that is so pervasive that tells me that's, those are the reasons to be there. You know, those are the reasons to be in Las Vegas or the Mojave Desert is because these are very interesting ecosystems with a lot happening in them. They're as complex as any ecosystem and the things going on in these ecosystems are as important to the functionality of the world as pretty much anything else. It doesn't get as much love or understanding as it deserves. It's sort of seen as the the space in between the environments that have something to offer as opposed to something that is already an ecosystem with a lot to offer in the first place.
1: Very much. Good question, Linda. Good answer, Alex. Steve,
3: you know, we're interviewing another star, another hero here. Yes. Who helps to make the world a better place for all of us. Thank you.
0: Alex, what has inspired you this week? The wildflowers. Uh, What inspired me this week? Yeah, I I remember remember this, yeah. The wildflowers and the desert have inspired me, and here's why. We have been in a drought for the last 20 to 25 years, and all ecosystems are going to go through a drought. All ecosystems are going to go through periods of time where you're going to have more moisture coming into the system than other ones, right? So we do expect that ebb and flow in nature. But this area of North America, a lot of the West has been experiencing many years of drought. And this past winter, we're coming out of a very chilly and moist winter. We had a lot of snowfall across the West from the Sierra Nevada uh, east towards the Rockies. And this last summer, we had a pretty decent monsoon season. To my eye right now, as I'm looking out in the desert, I'm seeing a lot of life return to the desert. And it's not that it was taken away completely and then restored in the last few weeks. It was that it just needed an opportunity to bounce back a little bit. And the amount of rain that has come into the system in the last few months has allowed the desert to rebound just a little bit, to have the perennial and annual plants germinate from seed and start to put out their flowers and attract innumerable amounts of pollinators to them. You start to see more of these birds coming back from Central America, and they're just right on time. This is all Through the process of natural selection, this is all by design for these animals to come up at this time and take advantage of this bounty of insects that are congregating around this bounty of, of flowers. And you really see the brilliance of the desert expressed in the summer. I think that for people that still don't see the desert as a place that has life in it, they haven't seen the desert when it is going through that one to two month period after a really good rainy winter when it's starting to put out all of its flowers and, and you realize when you look at that, that the desert just has a different way of operating. It just has this way of biding its time, conserving on to any of its water and additional energy and waiting until the right moment to just like put out as much life as possible before contracting and going into what we call dormancy. And there it's just a waiting game again until the next year, or maybe it's three years later, maybe it's four years later, if it's a really bad set of, of drought years back to back, and then the desert can bounce back. And so I think what we'll see going into the rest of this year is a lot of production and seeds from a lot of our plants and we'll start to see more offspring coming from our lizards and our snakes and our birds than we did in the last few years. And we'll start to see the desert sort of like recuperate a little bit after a couple really difficult years of, of heat. That's the brilliant of any ecosystem is this ability to like rise and fall, rise and fall. The hope is that there we have a couple more years like this in the near term, you know, in the next few years to allow things to get back to where they were before that drought. We we just don't know. But you're able to, at least I am, derive a little bit of hope from the observation of what I'm seeing in the desert uh, in the last few days. And to have come out of Utah, spending four days out in Utah and really like getting to see some of the plants just like really getting out there and, and producing and producing and seeing how the animals are taking advantage of it. It's one of those things that kind of keeps me going too.
3: Our fields are orange and yellow right now, aren't they? Yeah. They're just gorgeous. When just a few years ago, out there in the middle of the drought, I noticed the choya were being eaten by animals. And I thought, how do they even eat that? choya? stick all over my shoes that are hard to pull out. And they were eating that
0: it's a last resort right mm-hmm. you start to see that the cottontails and the jackrabbits are so desperate that they'll start to bite into the yuccas and some of the cactus like you know that it's really difficult for them it is wonderful
3: time right now here it isn't is it? a
0: wonderful time right now and thank you for let that be what
1: inspired you <laughs> so it wouldn't be fitting if we didn't have a little celebration for Aviquame. Oh, May okay. right now, because that's how I met Alex
0: oh, at, okay. at Kim Garrison Means yeah. Mystery Ranch. That's paying a visit. Yeah. yeah. They they had me out there to show me the ranch and introduce me to other people that were coming in and out of the Aviquame orbit, including yourself. So, we, we aligned at that point at Kim's place. And and now it's a national monument. And now that's great news. Monument.
3: That's fantastic. Super news.
0: Yeah. Very excited, and I've I've gotten to meet up with Steve a couple times during this process because we have people in the community kind of being the glue that helped to move these things along, and it was it seemed like a, a very small but determined group of people that helped to move this from BLM land to a national monument. Steve being part of part of that process a
1: small okay. small part but small we had part. we had we had a really good Kim is such a, a force of
0: nature isn't she she is she makes it seem so effortless yeah doesn't she yeah, and she's friends with everybody she is so. yeah she she knows she knows how to connect with people she yes knows where they can be connected with all right that's that's a talent
3: what a gift for the American people yes and thank you to all of you and congratulations Fantastic.
0: All right, Alex. Well,
1: thank you for dropping by our tiny town. Oh, this has to been. Speak to speak at our tiny podcast.
0: <laughs> this has been wonderful. And uh, I'm so glad that it worked out that I could swing by on my way back from Utah to Las Vegas today.
3: Thank you, Alex, for coming. Steve and I could talk to you for more, many more hours, but we're going to let you get back on the road. And we so appreciate that you spent time here with us.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Thank Alex. you both. Bye. Take care.
1: Alex is a podcaster, too. If you really like birds and want to learn more, listen to Alex's podcast called The Silver
0: State of Birding. The Silver State of Birding is a podcast that is dedicated to birding and bird conservation in the state of Nevada. If you are interested in this conversation or if you found that you wanted to learn more, then The Silver State of Birding is probably the right podcast for you.
2: Broadcasting from Mesquite, Nevada, in the scenic Mojave Desert, the Artbox sponsors thank you for listening. To find our next and past podcasts, find us online at mesquitefineartcenter.com where all accompanying images and links are available on the Art Box page. Questions, comments, opinions, and concerns can be sent to artboxvv at gmail.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of its hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Virgin Valley Artists Association.